This is a message from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. Grace Church is affiliated with Sovereign Grace Ministries. The Grace Church website is www.gracechurchfrisco.org. The speaker for this message is Craig Cabanis, the senior pastor of Grace Church. We're launching into a new study today, so if you have a Bible, you could open up to James, the book of James. We're going to be spending uh, really several months in this book, the book of James, really excited about this study. James is a book that I think uh, many of you are going to just love. Some of you have been waiting for us to get to a book like this. Because James is a book that's do this, do that. It's all about action. And uh, some of you who are just craving something to do uh, for God are going to find it in here on every page. And this is a bit of an adjustment from where we've been. I know we recently did something in John, but prior to that, we spent months going through the life of Jacob and the life of Joseph. And those were narrative portions of Scripture. And the way you approach a narrative is this way. It's a a story of somebody's life. But if it's in the Bible, we read that story of their life, and then we see something about God and how he uh, interacts with them. But there's no commandments. We read page after page after page of, of the lives of Jacob and Joseph, and there's not one explicit commandment. Never in those stories does the, does the writer turn around and say, Jacob did this, so therefore all of you readers go and do that. It's not there. And so as we understand God, we understand implicit claims upon our lives that his word makes, but it's not so explicit. So that's the passage of Scripture we've been in for months. Now we're going to a passage of Scripture, all God's Word, all true, but very different. This is a passage that is a, it's a letter written by a guy named James that's filled with stuff to do. As a matter of fact, in five chapters, there are about 58 commands in this book. So that's running at about a clip of 12 per chapter. And so when we went through the lives of Jacob and Joseph, frequently in the message, I would say, look at what we learn about God. Now, this passage doesn't tell us a bunch of things to do, but here's how we can respond to God based on what we see of him. In James, I won't be saying that because every week he will clearly tell us things to do. So it's an adjustment in how the scripture, different portions of scripture are written in different ways. This is a bit of adjustment. Matter of fact, we thought about handing out neck braces this morning because it's going to feel like a whiplash based on where we've been to where we're going now. But it's going to be a wonderful study. And the two are really going to go together beautifully because we've been studying what is God like and how can we understand God in the life of Jacob and Joseph. He's sovereign. We've studied his grace. We've studied his mercy. And now we're going to come to the book of James, and we're going to study what difference does that make in our lives. See, here's the kind of questions James is concerned with. What difference does knowing God make in your life? What difference does it make? I mean, James is going to answer the question, so what? So you know God, so God is real, so you believe the gospel that Jesus died for your sins and was raised again, so what? What difference does it make? James in this letter is going to talk about what is genuine faith? What is authentic faith? What is real faith? If I really believe in Jesus Christ, what does that look like? 
James is going to take doctrine, truth, and sort of put wheels on it so that we can see how do we walk this out? How do we live this out in our regular lives? James makes clear that real Christianity is not just believing a set of facts intellectually, but it's a changed life. It's Christianity is believing the gospel, but the gospel will work itself out in our lives in real ways. James is going to say this. He's going to say, faith without works is dead. What does that mean? Well, what he means is, if you say you genuinely, genuinely know Jesus Christ, if he's really your Savior and there's no evidence in that in your life, then he's not really your Savior. If there are not works that come from your life, then your faith is not living, it's not vital, it's dead. It's not real. He says, now, you you say, well, hey, I believe in God. Is that not enough? James will say, no. Demons believe in God. The devil believes in God. The devil would probably do better on a theology exam than anyone in the room. He knows truth. But he rebels. He hates truth. So James is going to say in this letter, because you know truth, that, that's not the ultimate. You have to believe truth. And truth has to then work itself out in your life. James is going to say, you know what? It's not enough just to come and hear God's word. It's not enough just to read the Bible. It's not just enough to have some guy get up on a stage, open the Bible, and yell for 30 minutes. That's not enough. It's not enough to hear the word of God. He said you're going to have to be a doer as well. You've got to hear the Scripture, and then you've got to respond to the Scripture. I love verse 27 of chapter 1. Look what he says. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is what he says. He says, here's real religion. Real religion, and that's a good word. Religion is a good Bible word. Some of us think religion's a bad word. It's a good word that the Holy Spirit put in this uh, chapter. So let's redeem the word religion and get it back in common usage in a positive way. So here's what he says about religion. He says, real, true, pure religion is this, that your belief in Christ means that in response you care for needy people. And he highlights two of the most needy, widows and orphans. So really knowing God and believing the gospel means that we will have a care for people who have a need. And then secondly, he says this, it's to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is, it's not only to care for people, but it's also to be concerned about holiness. It's also to be concerned about piety and obeying God and walking in God's word and obedience to him. So he says pure religion, and that's going to be the name of this series, pure religion. Pure religion is to believe truth and to respond to that truth with the evidence of a changed life. That little by little, the gospel has its effect in our soul so that Jesus Christ is changing us. It's not enough just to intellectually believe truth. It must be real in our hearts. It's not enough just to be orthodox. That means correct doctrine, to believe the right thing. We must also have orthodoxy, but also orthopraxy, which is correct practice or correct behavior. So for the coming weeks, we're going to be looking at this truth of James, which is that he writes, truth of God in the book of James, which is faith in action, authentic faith, 
Faith, it makes a difference. The gospel really having its effect not only to forgive us of our sins and justify us, but also to change us little by little, that is to sanctify us. And that's what we're going to be looking at. How does practical Christianity work out in my life? And how does practical Christianity work out in our church's life? How does it work out for us together? So it's going to be a wonderful study with, uh, with I think, uh, that God's going to change our church and change our lives through. We're not leaving gospel-centered truth. We're not leaving. It's all about grace. We're not leaving everything we've said so far. We're taking all those truths, and we're going to see how God teaches us to apply those in our lives. So it's not a new teaching. It's just a walking out of all that we've been learning over the previous month. So with that as a background, let's open up and read. We're just going to cover four verses today from James. Here's what he says. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings, verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete lacking in nothing. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these words on this page, and we pray right now that they would come alive in our hearts and minds. We know that you inspired these words, and I pray that they would speak to everyone in the room. Anyone here who may not know you, I pray that these words would speak as a way to bring them new life. And for anyone in the room who does know you, I pray that these words would speak to strengthen us and comfort us and challenge us and teach us how to live our lives before you. Lord, we want to be real people. We want to have authentic faith. And we pray, Lord, you would be speaking about that to us over these weeks ahead, and particularly today as we consider the difficulties of life. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we're going to work verse by verse. We'll look at four verses. We're going to walk through each verse and along the way kind of make some application and at the end talk about um, how we can really apply this to our lives. The letter starts with this James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the writer of the letter introduces himself as James. That's it. A lot of Jameses back a couple thousand years ago, at least three prominent Jameses in the New Testament But this James just uses his name James, like everybody knows who he's talking about. And that's probably because all the first readers would have known who he was talking about. So that leads scholars to say, given the fact that he just identifies himself generally like this, he's probably the best known James of the New Testament. That is the James who led the church in Jerusalem in the early church. So he was an early prominent leader of the church. Not only that, but that same James was actually the brother, or maybe technically the half-brother of Jesus Christ. So probably the author of this is the same one who was the brother of Jesus and who was a leader in the early church, that James, who's simply known by his name. And he identifies himself very humbly as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he positions himself humbly as one who is a servant, or the word can be translated slave, a slave of God. He doesn't introduce himself as, you know, I'm the brother of Jesus, so I probably know more than you do, so listen to me. 
He doesn't have some kind of arrogant thing. This is James. I'm a prominent leader uh, in Jerusalem, so you should all listen to me. But he's just, I'm James, and here's what I'd like to be known as, a slave of Jesus Christ. Jesus, the good master, the loving God that I follow. So he introduces himself as a slave. He says that he is writing to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Writing to the 12 tribes. What does that mean? Well, probably this letter, scholars think this letter was written in probably the mid to late 40s, not 1940s, but like or the beginning of the whole, uh, you know, the first uh, millennium there uh, after the birth of Christ. So like 45 to 49, say there, A.D. is probably when this was written, this letter. So it's early. It may have been the first letter in the New Testament. So what we might be reading is the earliest thing ever written by a Christian that we have preserved in the Bible. But if it wasn't the earliest, it was certainly one of the earliest. And he writes to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, if you've been around for months, we talked about the 12 tribes. The 12 tribes are the <clears throat> groupings of people that were, that were named after Jacob's 12 sons, which we looked at, the 12 tribes of Israel. So he makes an Old Testament reference to the 12 tribes of Israel in the dispersion. Well, you can kind of look at that word and guess what it means. There's been some dispersing taking place. And after there was dispersing, they were called the dispersion. It was called the dispersion. Jews that lived outside of the Holy Land, outside of the Promised Land, outside of Palestine, back then were part of the dispersion. And actually, in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 8, when the first Christians are gathered and there's a persecution that comes against the first Christians, they scatter as well. So it could be referring to those first Christians that were scattered like the 12 tribes of Israel were historically. Um, it could be that those, it's just those Christians that are out of their home like all of us and we're looking for another home. Our final home is not Jerusalem or the promised land. Our final home is in heaven with God. So he could be using it in a more metaphorical sense. It doesn't really say, but he's talking to Christians. He's talking to the 12 tribes, the people of God. God's people, and in this case, he's speaking to uh, those who follow Jesus Christ. He's speaking to the church here. So James, the well-known, who's a leader, who's a servant of Christ, is speaking to Christians who've probably been scattered all over the place that are looking for a permanent home that have been dispersed from their home. And then in uh, verse 2, he begins. The first point he really makes is that this is the first point I'm going to make today as well, is that we are to respond to trials with joy. We are to respond to trials with joy. Now, <clears throat> look at how he begins. Catch this. These are the first words James says. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. He starts right off with a commandment. He doesn't start off with grace to you. He doesn't start with greet someone. He doesn't start, I thank God for you. He starts out with a command. Count it joy when you meet trials of various kinds. All joy. Now, if you're new to the Bible, welcome. We're glad you're here. But if you're new to the Bible, you may hear that phrase and think to yourself, with all due respect, that's crazy. I mean, obviously, I think any of us that read it honestly would say that. Count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. 
See, the problem is that those of us who've read the Bible for a while are so familiar with a, voice, a, a verse like this that we just read over it without giving it much thought. And this is an astounding, this is a, this is a, a, a statement and a command that's way beyond what we think. Count it joy when bad stuff happens in your life. We're so familiar, we take a verse like that, we throw it on a coffee cup and sell it down at the bookstore. And so we're just familiar with that kind of thing. So we're sipping coffee out of a cup that says, count it all joy when you encounter various trials. This is written to people who are being persecuted for their faith, who have been dispersed. And James is writing to them, not in likely in the comfort of their own homes, where they're casually drinking a mocha with their coffee cup with a Bible verse on it, but people that are worried about their very lives, and he's saying, count it joy when you experience difficult things. And the first hearers would have said, what? And if you're new here, you would say, what? And if you're familiar with the Bible, you should be saying, what? See, I think we should read this like we've never heard it before. Like for the very first time, because some of us are way too familiar with the Scripture. We're way too casual. This is one of the most counterintuitive verses in all the Bible because it calls us to a response that's not natural. Count it joy when you experience various trials. What does he say? When you experience trials. Not if, but when. Every one of us experience trials. Even Christians, absolutely. Even people that love Jesus, absolutely. Every one of us experienced trials. So when you experience trials of various kinds, when you meet trials of various kinds, that, that word meet can be translated fall into. When you fall into trials of various kinds, when you meet trials of various kinds, when you're walking down the road in your life and up appears a problem, that you hadn't experienced. That time, when you meet, when you encounter, when you fall into various kinds of trials, diverse trials, all sorts of trials, many-colored, multifaceted trials, multi-layered trials, trials with different smells, different tastes, different textures, all kinds of problems. When you face a variety of problems, things you hate, things you don't like, things that go ouch, things that hurt, things that you want to get away from, things that bother you, distress you, get on your nerves, things that won't go away that are a nuisance, people that are a nuisance. That's a different message. We should probably address that attitude. But that attitude, people that are a problem, physical pains, Mental difficulties, all kinds of stuff. For these first readers, likely there was persecution in view. Persecution that led to economic deprivation because all of a sudden you're believing in something that everyone around you rejects and you lose your job. Maybe you have your goods taken. Maybe you're actually even thrown into prison for your faith. So some kind of persecution is probably what was in view for them. But I love it that James says various kinds of trials. So it's not just one. It's not just persecution. It's all sorts of problems that come to everybody when they happen to you, not if. When you lose your job. Those kinds of trials. When you have an accident. When there's an illness. 
when there's a serious illness, when there's an illness that's undiagnosable or undiagnosed. Yeah, that kind of trial, that kind of problem. When you're falsely accused of something you didn't do, and yet you are counted guilty in the minds of other people. When you have a marriage problem, when your problem is that you want to be married and are not, when your marriage is on the brink of dissolving or is dissolved, those kind of trials. When you have a challenge with your children, be they two years old or 20 years old, when your challenge is that you desire to have children and can't have children, those various kinds of trials are what's in view here. When you have physical weakness, when you can't sleep at night, those kinds of trials. When you have a mean, cruel boss, those kinds of trials. When those who work for you think you are a mean, cruel (laughs) boss, those kinds of trials. Kind of trials like car wrecks. Kind of trials like when somebody steals your stuff. Kind of trials like when people are gossiping about you and talking about you behind your back. Those kind of problems is what's in view here. Problems that, like this, when you are grieving over the loss of someone you love who's died. Ever grieved over someone who's died and you're in grief and you think, will I ever feel normal? What does normal even feel like? Because I just feel a burden. I just feel sadness all the time. Will I ever make it back to normal? Those kind of trials is what James is talking about. When you have a relational rift, when a friendship is broken and is no longer a friendship, when there's a rift in your extended family, or God forbid, when there's a rift in your immediate family, When there's a rift with people in the church. How about this one? How about when the people in the church didn't turn out to be what you thought they were going to be? As a new Christian, when it seemed like it was just love, love, love. All we need is love. When you thought that was uh, your entire Christian experience, you found out, wow, these people sin. How could that be? And there's a disillusionment with the church. Those kind of trials. How about when you're left disappointed by someone in your life? When you fall into diverse trials like I've listed, when they come, count it all joy. It seems like madness to count it joy when those things happen in our lives. How do we we consider those things an experience of pure joy? Well, let's see what he's not saying. He's not saying that the trial itself is joyful. He's not saying that In itself, it's going to be joyful to have one of the bad experiences that I just mentioned. He's not also saying that you should respond with some kind of an emotional happiness when bad things happen. I mean, that would be a lack of integrity. That would be, uh, at points, even inappropriate. If you're giddy at a funeral, that's inappropriate. I mean, that's not right. You're not supposed to be bubbling with happiness and sort of light and feathery at a time of mourning. Okay, so that's wrong. He's not saying always have a smile on your face. 
You know, that's kind of the fake idea that, boy, to be a Christian, you're always smiling. Lost my job? <laughs> I'm just smiling. I'm happy about it. Whatever, whatever it is, that's not what he's talking about. But he's saying that you are to count it all joy. I think the NIV says, consider it pure joy. Look at what he's saying. Consider it, that means make a mental choice. That has to do with how we think about things. He's not telling us how to feel about things here. Count it, consider it, is not emotional. That's not feel happiness no matter what bad stuff goes on. That's not what he's saying. He's saying mentally view trials in your life as a reason for joy. As you look at trials, have an attitude of joy. A verb we use, which I think is a noun, but we use it as a verb, process. We've made that a verb. So when you process the trials, when you look ahead through trials, have an attitude of joy. And that's the way we can do that is because what he says next is he goes on and he says, as you consider the purpose of these trials, you should have an attitude of joy. As you look ahead, as you look ahead, you'll see there's a purpose to difficulty in your life. And as you see a purpose of difficulty, have an attitude of joy joy. About a year and a half ago, I shared an illustration in a sermon about having a broken tooth. And uh, until very recently, I still had that broken tooth and was just pretty much uh, not going to get that tooth taken care of because I really don't like going to the dentist. So I was going to put it off, you know, until maybe it killed me or something. So uh, I just kept eating on said tooth until it broke again. So it's crumbling and becoming no longer a tooth, but a sad nub in my gum. And uh, so I had this tooth experience. And so I decided finally that it was time to get it fixed because this summer it broke again and started hurting. So every time I ate some ice cream, I had this sharp pain that went like down to my big toes. So I said, okay, at this point, I'm going to get it fixed. And so uh, drug myself to the dentist recently, very recently, and I remember just sitting in the waiting room, and I had this thought that, you know what, this is going to be good. I really don't like high-pitched drill sounds, especially when they're vibrating my head, but this is going to be good because what's going to happen is I'm going to go in that office, I'm going to sit in that chair, and they're going to do things and charge me a lot of money for them, but what's ultimately going to happen is I'm going to have a whole tooth. My tooth is going to be whole. It's not going to hurt This tooth back here, like when I eat ice cream, I'm going to be able to eat it with joy and not pain. It's not going to be a mixed blessing. Ice cream is going to be a pure blessing as it was created by God to be. And so I'm thinking this, I'm sitting in the chair, and I can't say it rose to the level of joy, but it did rise to the level of I had a view that I'm going to go through that chair, I'm going to go through that drill. I'm going to write the check, which will be the most painful part of the whole process. And then when I'm done, I'm going to be whole. Now, what I didn't know is it would be multiple visits before I'm done, and I'm in the midst of those right now. But this is exactly what James talked about. The trial itself, the chair, the drill, the check are painful at the time, but it's going to bring a whole a wholeness. It's going to bring a health. It's going to bring a strength in my mouth. That's a good thing. And that's what James says here. He says, look ahead. When you think of your trials, look ahead. And the second thing he says is, know that testing builds endurance. Know that the testing of your faith, verse 3, you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That steadfastness means endurance or perseverance. What he's saying is that when you have a problem, it's not random. 
If you're a Christian and you have a challenge, it's not a random inconvenience. It's not a meaningless problem. It's not an abstract pain that you have in your life. It's got a purpose. It's to test your faith and by the testing of your faith to build endurance. The word test is the same kind of word that's used when metals are purified, like gold or silver, or refined, and the impurities are burned out of them so that something more valuable comes to be. And that's what he's saying. Your faith, the testing of your faith, when problems come as a Christian, your faith is going to be tested. And you know what God's purpose is? Then all the impurities of your faith are burned out, and your faith is purified because you trust God in the difficulty. And then that builds endurance in your life. I don't know how people, and I say this not in a condescending way, but in a compassionate way as best I know. I don't know people who don't know God, who aren't Christians. I don't know how they walk through the problems of life. All that list of about 85 downers that I dropped on everybody thought, well, I thought church was a happy place, and he spent 10 minutes telling me all the bad stuff. I thought about bad stuff I didn't even know was going on in my life. All that bad stuff I talked about a few minutes ago. If you face that without a Christian and you're not a Christian, you're left just to think, what do I do? Why is that happening to me? What can I do about it? And all you do is live your life protecting yourself from bad stuff. Because when bad stuff happens to you, there's no purpose. There's no meaning. There's no hope in it. But do you know what James is saying to the Christian? Even when bad stuff happens to you as a believer, there's a purpose. There's a meaning. There's even a value. There's even a blessing. There's even, excuse me, something good about it. When bad stuff happens to you, God wants to use that so that you will trust Him, come to Him, rely upon Him, that's the testing of your faith, and your faith will be purified and endurance will be built in your life in trusting God. And that's a good thing. Endurance is a good thing. Your problems, whatever you're facing today, financial, relational, physical pain or difficulty, don't waste that difficulty. God's got a purpose for that and wants to do something in you and through you with that difficulty and problem in your life today. There's hope. There's something redemptive about it. James says, you know this is the case. That's how he starts the verse. Verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. James is saying, you know that. We know that in regular life, that when we are tested, there is a strengthening that comes, which is a good deal. I mean, if you don't run, you can't walk out here today and say, I'm going to run a marathon. You know, what are you doing today? I don't know. I just had this idea. I think I'm going to go run 26 point whatever miles. You cannot do that. You don't just walk out and have stamina, endurance, perseverance to run a marathon. Um, But if you run little by little, you can increase your distance. I know this because I ran one time for two weeks in my life. And so for two weeks, I was a runner. And I know that in the period of two weeks, last December, I shared an illustration about a guy in the church that mocked me for doing the elliptical and said that was not a masculine exercise and mocked me. So I shared that with the whole church. I didn't expose him, but everybody knew who who he was. And uh, so he mocked me. So what happened was I went to the gym like shortly after that, and all the ellipticals were taken. All the ladies were on there. So... uh, (laughs) It wasn't just, half of them were like pregnant ladies. It wasn't just ladies. So they're all doing their elliptical thing. 
And so I didn't have a choice. I either go home, which I strongly considered, or get on a treadmill and run. So I did. I decided to run. And actually, I kind of liked it. So I went back and I ran again. What I found, and then I told them, and I decided I was going to be a runner. So what I found was that if I ran and pressed myself and got really tired, I could go back the next time, and I could do that, and I could run a little bit more. And I just set it for a little bit farther each time. And I noticed that it really was more like two months before I had a foot injury and went back to the elliptical. But nonetheless, um, but I found in two months, after two months of regular running and pushing myself, I could run a lot farther than I could the first time. Why? Because the testing, the resistance, the pushback against my lungs and my legs and my fingernails and everything else that rebelled against running, I was hurting everywhere, it gave me strength and endurance. And that's what James is saying. When you have problems, count that joy because here's what that's going to do. It's going to press you into God. You're going to trust the Lord. It's going to purify your faith, and it's going to build endurance. But he doesn't stop there because endurance is not the ultimate goal. Look what he says, and we'll finish with this. Verse 4, let steadfastness or endurance or perseverance, same thing, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Here's what he says. Endurance brings maturity. So we can count it joy when we face our trials because trials bring perseverance. And perseverance brings maturity. That's the final goal. That's what he says. Let steadfastness have its effect. What's to be the effect of endurance? It's to mature us. Now, he uses the word perfection, that we may be perfect. Now, we know until heaven nobody's perfect. We all have sin. We know until heaven we're not perfect, but we are being perfected. We are being matured. The same word is translated matured. In uh, Philippians 3.15, Paul says, to all those who are mature, I say, it's the same word. To all, if he said to all those who are perfect, if it was translated that way, uh, Jesus alone qualifies. But he's talking to a broader group, and he says to all those who are mature. So let endurance have its way, because then you will be mature, godly. You'll be complete. That is, there'll be a wholeness to your Christian life. Your Christian character will be whole and complete, lacking in nothing. You know, if you are here today and you're a Christian, that's the goal of your life. Not every minute, because we sin. Many times the goal of my life is to please myself and not to please God. So we all sin. But the general attitude, if you're honest, you say, what's the goal of your life? Well, it would be to please God and to be godly, to be mature, to be like Jesus Christ, conformed to his image. And what he says here is that's a good goal. And that goal comes through facing trials, growing in endurance, allowing endurance to have its effect because then you're made mature. And so when you see the end of the goal is to be mature, or in the illustrations I use today, to have a whole mouth, that's not diseased and falling apart, that's a good goal to be able to eat without pain. To be able to be healthy, even healthy enough to run 26 whatever miles, that's that's an amazing goal of physical health. He's saying here's a goal that beats teeth and running. The goal of being mature and godly. And he says the way that you get there is by walking through difficulty. Oh, look at the plan. You're going to be stretched. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be, at times, unpleasant. But the goal is going to be that God is going to mature you 
through trials. If I could summarize what James says, here's the whole point. Bring it together in a sentence. Face trials with pure joy because you grow up when you press on. When you press on in difficulty, you grow up. And if you want to grow up, you have to press on. And what you press on through is difficulty and trials. So when trials come, you can be joyful because God has a purpose. He wants you to grow up. He wants to mature you. He wants to make you more like Jesus. He wants to change your character. He wants to make you a person with a beautiful heart, with a godly heart, with a humble heart, with a zealous heart, with a loving heart, with a tender heart, with a holy heart. God wants to do that stuff in our lives. Now, if he had asked any of us, we'd say, yeah, we know how to do that. Just come down, say a little prayer, and then you're perfect. That's what we would all like. But that's not the way God designed it. God says, you want to grow up? you got to press on. And God's designed it so that the way to maturity is through facing difficulty and trusting Jesus Christ and building endurance and letting endurance have its work so that we are complete, that is mature, not lacking anything. Here's why I think we don't face trials with joy. Because we don't see this purpose. See, we don't see this purpose. I see the trial as that is a problem. I don't like it. Get it out of my life. I don't want to be inconvenienced. I don't want to be stretched. I don't want physical pain. I don't want emotional pain. I don't want relational pain. I want ease. I want comfort. I want everybody to like me. I want blessing. I want good food, good friends, relaxation, a problem-free existence. I don't want any hassles in my life. And that, my friends, is the road to immaturity. That is the pathway to stunted spiritual growth. But James says the pathway to maturity is walking through the difficulties when they come, not if, Facing the difficulties and seeing the process and seeing that God's going to use them and then at the end of it, we will be mature and facing that with joy. So my attitude in facing difficulties is different. See, oftentimes my attitude in facing difficulties is complaining because I don't see any purpose in it. I don't want to wait in line. I don't want to wait in traffic. That's a big thing. I don't want to have a sickness. That, that, I mean, that's a small thing. That's a big thing. I don't want to have a sickness or I don't want to lose a job, or I don't want to lose a loved one to death. Those are big things. But the reality is God will use those to work in our lives. And when we see that, then rather than facing difficulty with grumbling, complaining, whining, not only to God but to anyone who will listen, instead of that, then we're able to face them with joy. In my own life, I'm often just pursuing relief from trials. So my prayers are often, God, get this out of my life. God, stop this. God, don't let this happen. And that's an appropriate prayer. I mean, if you're sick, you should pray for healing. That, James says that in, in chapter 5. If you're sick, let him call for the elders of the church. Let's pray for him. We're going to cover that when we get to that. So if you're sick, of course you should pray for healing, and you should seek means to get Healed. If you have pneumonia, please go to the doctor. Pray and go to the doctor. So you should press, I mean, you should, you should try to get relief. I'm not saying that's wrong. But oftentimes, I'm just praying for relief. I'm just praying for relief and not praying for endurance. And it's with endurance through relational, financial, physical problems, it's through enduring those kind of things that God changes my character. 
and that God makes me more like Jesus. So we don't only pray for trials to end, but we pray for God to use them in our lives as well. The writer to the book of Hebrews, which is the book right before James, that writer also talks about enduring trials. And I want you to listen to what he says as we conclude, because this is what he says about where to look in trials. He says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He says, when you're in difficulty, when you're in trials, when you have problems, when you have challenges, when you are drowning in hardship, look to Jesus. Because Jesus endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. This is really important. This is the most important thing I'm going to say all morning. Is that Jesus Christ endured something very difficult beyond our comprehension. It wasn't the kind of trials that I listed in that long list of trials. He had a trial that was much worse than that. You see, Jesus died on the cross. And many people died on crosses. It's an excruciating physical death. But his death on the cross was worse than merely a physical death. Because the Bible teaches us that he died for sinners. The Bible teaches that God is holy, that he is perfect. And he calls us to be perfect and holy. And we're not. No one is. And because we're not perfect, we're not holy. The Bible says that we deserve God's judgment, God's wrath. We deserve God's punishment for our sin. But Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, Jesus came to earth and lived a perfect life, and then Jesus was crucified in our place. And what the Bible teaches is that while Jesus is on the cross, it's not just a physical death that he's experiencing. But God, this is amazing, God took our sins and placed them on Jesus, who was perfect, who was holy, who was flawless, placed our sins on Jesus, and then God the Father poured out His judgment, His wrath, His condemnation. Actually, the Bible says His holy anger that should have been towards us. I'm the one who sinned, not Jesus. You're the one who sinned, not Jesus. But God made Jesus a substitute, so in our place He died. God poured out all the punishment for sin that we deserve on Jesus. Jesus died as a sacrifice for our sins. And then he was buried and he was raised again to new life. So that now anyone who believes in Jesus, if we turn from our sins and we believe that he is the Savior, we're Christians. Our sins are forgiven. We receive a new life. We're made right with God. We're no longer under his judgment. So we can be under God's judgment and live our own way and face eternity in hell. Or we can turn from our sin. We can turn from Jesus and say, Jesus, you died in my place. I believe in you as my Savior. And receive new life and be with Christ forever in eternity. That's what Jesus did. And the writer of Hebrews says, for the joy that was before him, he endured the cross. Well, what was the joy that was going to be after the cross? What joy did he see? It wasn't joyful to have nails in his hands. It wasn't joyful to the perfect God take our sins upon himself. That's not a joyful experience, but the joy was at the end when he would see what would happen. What would happen? Well, he would please the Lord, his Father. He was God as well, but he pleased the Lord by seeing that justice was executed, that the penalty for sin was poured out, 
So there was a joy in saying that the holiness of God was on display. God has punished sin, but also what was on display was the love of God. God has taken his own punishment for sin. The joy before him was that loud and clear throughout eternity would be announced, God is holy and God is loving. God has taken his own punishment so that we may know him. So Jesus sees the joy of pleasing his Father. And Jesus sees the joy of expressing love to you. Jesus sees the joy of God's people coming before God, forgiven for he has endured suffering on our behalf. That's why it says that Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith. He founded our faith. We're Christians because of what Jesus did for us. We're right with God because of what Jesus did for us, not what we do for ourselves. Do you see that? And he could see the joy of that. And now he's forgiven us, and he's working in our lives, and he's changing us to be like him. He's forgiven us, and one day at a time, He's making us more and more like Him. And you know what He's doing? He's doing that by walking us through difficulties and showing Himself strong in the middle of it, comforting us, strengthening us, giving us the power to persevere and endure. And He set the ultimate example of that. See, if Christ endures suffering, so do we. But ultimately, His suffering was so that one day we would never experience suffering. We persevere for the joy that's in front of us. We have joy today because there's coming a day where if you're a Christian, there will be no more suffering. One day we'll meet Christ face to face. We'll be with him in heaven. If you've believed in him and trusted him, you'll be with him in heaven. And you know what? You'll have no pain, no sin, no sorrow, no relational breakdown, no financial troubles, no physical pain, none of that. We'll be with him forever. And so for that joy set before us, we can have joy today. No, God is using this in my life. God is using this. And we can change our prayers to not only God get rid of this, which is an appropriate prayer at times, but Lord, until you do get rid of this, or if you choose not to get rid of this, give me endurance and help me meet you in the middle of this. God wants you holy more than anything else, and he loves you enough and me enough that he'll walk us through difficulty to do for it. Do it. And so we have purpose in our trials today. We have purpose to come to him and in the midst of that to know joy. How do I know joy? I look at the process ahead of me. I look at the end result and I say, God's going to use this. Some of us need that today. I mean, there are people in the room that are walking through, I mean, hairy stuff in your life. There are people in the room that I believe there's folks in the room who recently have said, I might just give up. I don't know if I can make it as a Christian. God wants to strengthen you today. God wants to give you endurance today. God wants to help you today. And he wants you to know that he's walking you through this so that you will be a changed person, a person that reflects the love of God to others because he cares for you in your difficulties. Let's pray. God, we thank you today that you don't leave us to suffer on our own, but you bring difficulties in our lives only to Help us to be conformed, to to be like you. And I pray for everyone in the room. I pray anybody who doesn't know you that today would be the day they meet you. And I pray for anybody who does know you here today that there would be a fresh inspiration to experience the difficulties of life. That we could experience them with faith. We could experience them with joy. That we could respond knowing you're working in them and through them to make us different people. Lord, we ask forgiveness forgiveness for not pursuing you in our difficulty 
for just grumbling and complaining. And we ask that you'd change us. Lord, I also pray that you'd give us mercy and hearts of compassion for those suffering around us. That we'd bear up their burdens. That we'd love them. That we'd help them. That we'd care for them. That we'd be your hands and your feet as it were to them. Embracing them during their difficulty. Lord, I pray that we as a church would have a right view of trials and tribulations and suffering. That we'd pray for one another and help one another. And we would anticipate and expect you to change us all. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit www.gracechurchfrisco.org.